From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, guest host OSU student Jenny Patton talks to Jack Hart, author of StoryCraft, about his recommendations for structuring narrative nonfiction. Also, OSU student Derek Palacio reviews Miroslav Penkov's literary debut, East of the West, A Country in Stories. Stay tuned. Hi, Jack. You're the former managing editor and the writing coach of The Oregonian, author of A Writer's Coach, An Editor's Guide to Words That Work. And your new book is called StoryCraft, The Complete Guide to Writing Narrative Nonfiction. And I have to tell you right off the bat that I'm a huge fan of it. I've already used it to map out my thesis project. Oh, that's terrific. And I hope to rely on it as I teach um, undergrads creative nonfiction this fall. Well, it was written to be useful. And uh, I tried to produce a practical book that writers could really put to work. In the title, you have a complete guide to writing narrative nonfiction, and I thought we could start there. In OSU, the, pr- the program calls the field creative nonfiction, and I was at a workshop mm-hmm. recently where it was referred to as literary nonfiction. What is narrative nonfiction, and are these other terms synonymous to it, or are they something different? I don't think they are exactly synonymous. Uh, as you just noted, uh, creative and literary nonfiction have uh, enjoyed quite a, quite a vogue in university uh, lit and writing departments over the past number of years. They tend to focus on first-person writing, on memoir, on a creative interpretation of the world. Narrative nonfiction, I think, is a broader term, and it reflects a more journalistic approach to reporting on our current culture and environment and is a form that really has uh, emerged over the past 30 years or so as a principal element in mass market media content kind of across the board in American culture. It's a pretty significant literary development, I think. Uh, It's reflected in the book world by, uh, oh, originally the new journalists like Nora Ephron and Norman Mailer and John McPhee and Hunter Thompson and probably traces its roots back to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which right. was uh, p- published in the mid-60s. And now we have a whole wave of, of what have been called the new, new journalists, people like Ted Conover and David Grann and Laura Hillenbrand and Sebastian Younger. And uh, these people are regularly producing uh, bestsellers that are often written in third person, that are outward-looking, that are reported nonfiction. Uh, works that incorporate all of the most sophisticated techniques of traditional fiction storytelling. And if I remember correctly, Capote's in Cold Blood, they didn't know what to call it. It was the nonfiction novel was how it was built. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually a a pretty uh, accurate term. When you think about the techniques that Capote was so good at as a novelist and bringing those to nonfiction. Now, it's worthy of note that Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels appeared in the same year, so hmm. uh, Capote didn't invent this out of whole cloth. I think it was, it was a literary movement that uh, was waiting to happen. But it's a significant American development in literature. Uh, narrative nonfiction is to, to literature sort of what jazz is to music. It's something hmm. perfected in this country and given to the world. In your book, you describe yourself as both an editor and a writing coach. How are those roles different? I come out of the newspaper world, but I think the skills that we're talking about here transcend newspapers. But traditionally, a newspaper editor sat down and reworked a piece of writing. 
whereas a coach, and, and there was a movement to develop coaching at newspapers in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, a coach is someone who is a teacher, who works with a writer throughout the writing process, uh, developing ideas, planning, reporting, uh, organizing the information, deciding on the best structures for, mm-hmm. for telling a story. Someone who is constantly engaged in conversation with a writer uh, in much the same way that an athletic coach might be over an extended period of time. Uh, the two come together during the editing process, and I always made a practice of when working with writers doing narrative nonfiction projects to try to edit shoulder to shoulder. But uh, the coach's role extends considerably beyond the traditional editor's role. And I think that's what attracted me to the idea so much. Uh, traditionally, in writing workshops, the class is responding to work that's already on the page. And I love the idea of the coach of getting in there in the beginning. I think you compared it to a contractor, an architect, getting the plan set ahead of time before the writing begins. Yeah, traditionally, editors have not come into the process until all the important decisions have been made. And the writer's been pretty much on his own up until that point. The structure that you mentioned, the narrative arc, which I've actually drawn in my own thesis, I've got um, lots of squiggles and and X's uh, following your method. I wanted to see if there's a way that you could try to describe that for our listeners. Well, that's the traditional uh, form of story that's reflected in story theory that goes all the way back to Aristotle, in which a protagonist, someone who is uh, going to make things happen in the world, is shaken out of his or her a stable orbit, uh, and has to find uh, a new stability by overcoming a series of problems. So an arc starts when a protagonist engages a complication, some problem of some kind, uh, and takes off in what's called rising action as the protagonist struggles with that complication, often failing to overcome it, finally reaching a point of insight, a new understanding of the world, and that's what the story gives to humanity as a way of solving problems by seeing things in new ways. Uh, And then uh, moving through a climax uh, in which the complication is resolved and a denouement in which all the loose ends are tied up, and that's the classic story arc. Now, it's worth pointing out that not all narrative nonfiction is a story narrative with a classic arc. There are very important forms like explanatory narrative Mm -hmm. that don't have a traditional story arc at all. And I think one thing that I tried to do in this book was to explore those forms as well as the more limited idea of the story narrative. I want to come back to the story arc, but let's go with explanatory narrative because that was a new term to me. And as soon as I read, you know, John McPhee, I recognized it. Can you go into what that is exactly? Well, I think it's one of the most important forms in American narrative nonfiction. It's one of my favorites. I've been heavily involved in coaching narrative nonfiction pieces, most notably with Rich Reed's Pulitzer Prize winner on the Asian economic crisis uh, about 10 years ago. And it's a way of using a narrative line to explore an idea and and clarify it for readers. You mentioned John McPhee. He's the past master of this particular form. But uh, Susan Orleans' The Orchid Thief, for example, Mm -hmm. is an explanatory narrative. Matter of fact, that wonderful movie adaptation was about the failure of Hollywood to (laughs) understand (laughs) an explanatory narrative and the differences between an explanatory narrative and a story narrative. Uh, and, and so what you do is you follow uh, usually a single, it would be misleading to call that person a protagonist, but a, a central character 
not always one, but often, uh, through some experience that doesn't necessarily have rising action and a climax and all of that, and occasionally digress mm -hmm. to, in more abstract terms, discuss whatever it is about that experience that bears explaining. A, a classic example would be McPhee's Alaska book, Coming Into the Country, where he follows various Alaskans as they go about their business, but then digresses to talk about the history of Alaska, the culture of Alaska, what Alaska means. And you describe the structure suggestion as like a layer cake. So we're, we're alternating narrative scenes with digressions. Exactly. Once you grasp that structure, it's, it's enormously useful in uh, modern America because it's a way of, of really showing people through experience what some significant thing means. Returning to the narrative arc, we've got five sections, exposition, the rising action, the crisis, the climax, and then the uh, denouement. What interested me was that the rising action you described could be a hundred minutes of a hundred and twenty minute Hollywood film. That that these aren't equally weighted in terms of of time and and page length. That's right. Can you describe a little bit of that oscillating curve that is mentioned in your book in the rising action section? In the classic pure Hollywood approach to things, you have a protagonist who has high points and low points and high points and low points. And that's where the dramatic tension comes through. That's what keeps you on the edge of your seat through most of a Hollywood film. Think about one of the Terminator movies, for example. Right. There's a change in each series of scenes in where the protagonist stands in relationship to resolving the complication. So highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows. Right. And you, you can see how that would affect the audience and keep the audience involved. And you mix in some cliffhangers with that and you get real melodrama. Uh, but on a more nuanced level, that's also a way to keep uh, readers involved in a good nonfiction story. Can this narrative arc be used for a memoir project? Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, that's the point of most memoirs is to show how the writer, you yourself become the, the protagonist in a, uh, in a memoir, how the writer uh, reached a new understanding of the world and got to a better place. That's what makes memoir appealing and interesting and inspirational to readers. A lot of memoir involves discovery. Where does discovery fall into this narrative arc? Well, I think every true story involves discovery. Okay. It's a way that humanity has developed to encapsulate wisdom, our understanding of the world. And you can see it going back to, well, probably even pre-human times as a way of passing along uh, important knowledge about how to cope with a challenging environment. So you think of a group of hunters sitting around the campfire telling war stories about the latest hunt uh, and how the, the young hunters are soaking up that information and thinking about how they might apply it to their own ways of dealing with the world. And the interesting thing is that uh, the recent brain research indicates that we're hardwired for storytelling. There's mm -hmm. a particular area of the brain, which if you put somebody in an MRI scanner and have him or her tell a story, lights up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> so I think this is an evolutionary development. Uh, it's why story has always been with us as human beings and always will be, and why it's so central and important to our understanding of the world and our ability to live successful lives.
I loved how you described um, your writer friend, Julie Sullivan, and how she grew up among Irish immigrant yarn spinners who told competitive stories. Um, right. It, when you were growing up, was that, was that, were there storytellers in your life that were helping you make sense of things around you? Oh, I think so. I, I just uh, gave a copy of Storycraft to my brother, and I inscribed it to the family's best storyteller, and he looked at that and he said, you know, that's not true. He said, our dad was the family's best storyteller. <laughs> so... I think that's a, a pretty good hint of, of where my interest in storytelling telling comes from. My dad told such body stories, I'd never be able to repeat many of them. <laughs> but... <laughs> in your chapter on scene, I found it interesting that you recommended that each scene should take 500 words, and I'm wondering how you arrived at that. Well, let's not be too rigid about that. I think probably <laughs> what I said was that in my experience, you know, in writing uh, a nonfiction narrative for newspapers, it takes about 500 words to develop a scene. A scene might be quite a bit longer than that. But you can't do a full-fledged scene in which you create a stage, uh, fill it with props, and populate it with people in much, much fewer than 500 words. So in planning a story, let's say you, you want to write an explanatory narrative. And the shortest one you can make is probably going to have three narrative segments and two digressions. Well, figure that out. That's five sections of at least five. You're going to need about 2,500 words to do right. explanatory narrative. And if you don't have that much space and you have to deal with the practical realities of publishing, uh, then, uh, then maybe you need to find a different form. Tell me about dreams. You said that the idea of narrative as a dream transformed the way that you thought about storytelling. Yeah, well, you know, I was trained as a journalist and... Uh, I came of age thinking that my job was to uh, provide an accurate picture of reality. And uh, I heard David Lean, the uh, film director, quoted one time saying that uh, it took him a long time to realize that his job was not to depict reality, but to create a fictive dream, put people into kind of a dream state. That doesn't mean being inaccurate, far to the contrary, I mean, accuracy is your the primary arrow in your quiver when you're writing narrative nonfiction. It's what makes what you're writing so appealing to readers. And you can't abandon that core principle. But you do want to carry readers along in the absorption and dreamlike quality that comes from being totally involved in a good story. And that's what all those literary techniques are all about. So you don't include everything in a story, for example. You include that which advances the story. Gotcha. You're not providing a, a totally comprehensive picture of every detail of reality. Uh, you're making conscious choices to get readers moving along with the story and to keep them there. You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with guest host OSU student Jenny Patton and writer Jack Hart author of Storycraft. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch our interviews by visiting www.ohiochannel.org or by checking your local television listings for broadcast times on The Ohio Channel. Now, back to Jenny Patton and writer Jack Hart discussing the theme of a story. 
I have to admit, when I hear the word theme, I, I think of the dreaded five-paragraph essay that I try to have my undergrad <laughs> students stay away from. Yet you positioned it as a very fundamental issue in narrative nonfiction by focusing on the question, what does all this mean? Yeah, it's the lesson, really, that you're trying to teach. It's, your, your, it's, it's why what you are writing about is significant. Uh, you know, you're telling your, your readers or viewers, and let's emphasize that what we're talking about is story theory that applies to broadcasting, to movie making, mm-hmm. to magazine writing, to book writing, to, to any number of online applications. Uh, these ideas apply to all kinds of communication, not just uh, the printed book or the newspaper or the printed magazine. And all those forms has to have some significance to be worthwhile. So that's what I mean by theme. Okay. It's the core lesson that everything you are reporting will uh, lead uh, readers to understand. And sometimes as the story moves along, that, that theme will change. Can you give an example of, or maybe quickly walk us through your conversation with a writer helping them arrive at the theme and, and what happens when the story goes a different direction than predicted? Well, maybe the best example of that is... Uh, the story Tom Hallman and I worked on together that eventually won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing, which was called The Boy Behind the Mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom had worked with me for years, and he came in to talk to me about a tip he'd received from a reader about a young boy in uh, in our city, Portland, who had a terrible, uh, what's called a vascular deformity that created a huge outcropping on his face that pretty much obscured the boy within, hence the notion of the boy behind the mask. And Tom had discovered that this young man was going back to Boston Children's Hospital for a potentially life-threatening surgery to remove the vascular anomaly. So we talked a lot about, well, what's the significance of that? This was a young fellow who was just graduating from middle school and going into high school. We talked about the pressures for conformity, how important it is to be like everybody else when you're in high school and to be popular. Uh, and we thought that this was going to be a story about that, that here was somebody willing to risk his life to look like everybody else. Uh, well, as it turned out, the surgery was not terribly successful. After the surgery, this young man looked pretty much as he had before, and so we had to find a different theme at that point to save the story. It turned out to be an even better story because mm-hmm. what that failure led to was the young man's insight that the important thing was to be content with who he was and to do the best he could uh, with the cards he'd been dealt. And that's a pretty fundamental life lesson. And in fact, we got thousands of emails and phone calls and letters from people, many of whom said, you know, this is, this is a really important story that I'm going to share with my children to teach them that the important thing is to be at peace with who you are and to apply your talents the best you can. Do you think the stakes in that story were higher being nonfiction than they would be if it had been a fictional story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it had been a fictional story, you you could have stuck probably with your original premise. But I think because it was nonfiction and you have this absolute obligation to be accurate, that it becomes more valuable than fiction uh, in many ways Mm -hmm. because it reflects reality and because it's not 
necessarily an easy or obvious solution to the problem you pose at the beginning. It's much more like what all of us face when we deal with the challenges of our everyday lives. There have been a number of studies, a couple of which I report in my book, on the declining appeal of of fiction and the rising appeal of nonfiction among the reading public. Mm -hmm. And uh, the number of folks who report having read uh, a work of fiction has dropped well below 50% in the past year uh, on, on recent surveys. But dealing with reality, nonfiction, it just gets more and more popular. Even with reality television and artificial constructs such as that, we it's a product of an age in which we are globalized and in which we are able to find out so much more about the reality around us. I think that uh, reality has become more interesting in some ways than the unimaginary world. And with that reality often comes ethical challenges. So I read that you said you've never worked on a narrative project that didn't raise ethical questions. I I wanted to see if you could recount perhaps one of those. Well, there's a whole range of them. Um, Let's see, a specific example. Well, let's take another Hallman story. He wrote about a a young man named uh, Gary Wall at one time who was involved in a, a traffic accident that caused a traumatic brain injury very common kind of injury in this day and age, particularly after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Tom decided to report on Gary Wall's struggle to build a new life after he lost his old one, because he was no longer to be able to be the person he had been to hold the job he had held and those kinds of things. Matter of fact, we called the piece A Life Lost and Found. So the narrative arc followed Gary as he struggled to come to terms with his new situation and to succeed within the limits of his new abilities. Well, just to begin with, there are all kinds of privacy issues and something like that. Naturally, over a period of time, somebody like Tom becomes pretty friendly with someone he's reporting on for weeks or months on end. Gary Wall had some real failures and disappointments along the way. The temptation might be to soft-pedal those uh, in some ways. The temptation might be to inflate the magnitude of the protagonist's accomplishments to make the story arc more involving. Uh, All kinds of those issues come along. What do you leave out? What do you put in? What kinds of promises do you make? Do, if you are asked to leave something out of a piece, do you agree to that right. in exchange for access? There's a, a whole range of ethical issues that go far beyond simple black and white ethical questions like whether or not it's legitimate news of the world style to tap a, a news uh, source's phone. Jack, we just have a few more minutes left, and I wanted to ask uh, what your writing schedule looked like for StoryCraft, and also to find out if you advise writers on how to structure their own writing time. Well, I think almost any uh, accomplished writer will tell you the key is consistency. To get your butt in the chair on a regular basis, uh, I had a little more time for StoryCraft than I have had for previous big projects because I had retired from my newspaper job by the time I actually started drafting. But, for example, my previous book, A Writer's Coach, I wrote that when I was still managing editor at The Oregonian, and uh, I did it by by writing from 8 to 9 every morning before I headed out the door and walked to work. 
and that doesn't seem like much, but it adds up over time. And was that a, in a year process or a three-year process? How long did that take? I'd say it took me oh, a year and a half or so to produce a draft working that way. Uh, but it certainly took two or three years to get the whole book together. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you can get 500 words a day written, uh, it doesn't take you all that long to produce an uh, 85,000-word draft. Any final advice for beginners in the nonfiction narrative field? The one thing I would really stress is that this is something you can do. If you've learned basic writing, the kinds of skills I talked about in Writer's Coach, and if you understand something about reporting, knowing how to go out into the world and get information, and then you look to a resource like Storycraft and learn basic structures, you can hit the ball out of the park sometimes the first time at the plate. Uh, uh, one of uh, the writers I worked with at the Oregonian, David Stabler, the classical music critic, came across a uh, really, really interesting story and decided he wanted to tackle a uh, nonfiction narrative as a way of telling it. And that was his first one ever. He didn't have a clue going into it. He struggled a little bit to grasp some of the basic principles. But then he wrote uh, a terrific story and made the finals for the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. And Rich Reed, on whom I worked, uh, that was called the French Fry Connection, that story by the way, listeners can check these out at the Pulitzer site if they'd like to read them or at my site at the University of Chicago Press website has a lot of these wonderful stories. Anyway, Rich Reed, French Fry Connection was the first narrative nonfiction piece he'd ever written and he won the Pulitzer Prize. So if you do your homework, you can succeed at this kind of writing if you have basic foundation that you need. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, thank you for StoryCraft, the complete guide to writing narrative nonfiction. It's been lovely to speak with you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Derek Blasio is earning his master's in fine arts in creative writing at The Ohio State University, which gives him plenty of reason to keep up with the most interesting new writers, such as the subject of his review today. Miroslav Pankov's literary debut East of the West is a beautifully written, at times sentimental, and almost always tragicomic story collection that concerns itself with much more than the author's place of origin, Bulgaria. Much can be made of the suggestive subtitle, A Country in Stories, but Penkov's narratives do more than simply explore his Eastern European roots, their mythologies, and personal histories. They also confront the American immigrant experience, address notions of transient, and illuminate the restlessness of modern life. The story Buying Lenin, which appeared in the Best American Short Stories 2008, seemingly does all those things as it charts the tenuous relationship between a grandfather and grandson, the former staunchly pro-communist, the latter happily headed for school in capitalist America. What Penkov achieves in this piece is a masterful tug-of-war between the past and present, between the old and the young, between here and there. The result is a dialogue spanning oceans that pitch-perfectly highlights the grandson's complex sense of guilt and freedom. As many of these tales do, Buying Lenin wishes to not be about one place or the other, but instead shines a light on the gray area between allegiances. The grandson does not understand his grandfather's adherence to outdated communist ideals, but even still, blood, the patriarch hopes, is thicker than the ocean. And so the young man, despite his international relocation, is pulled hopelessly toward home and family. Penkov, in the end, is more interested in the distance between people than he is in the distance between places. East of the West is also a gorgeous primer on Bulgarian history, or at least Bulgarian folklore. 
Macedonia pairs military record with the plight of a 71-year-old husband struggling to care for a wife who's barely survived two strokes. The title story, East of the West, draws a romantic note from the dangerous border between Serbia and Bulgaria in 1970. Cross Thieves pokes fun at the political instability of Penkov's homeland in the late 1990s via the perspective of a wonderkind with photographic memory. And Dev Shirma demonstrates how people are both sustained and revealed through the stories they tell. This final piece in the collection, employing an ancient tale that the narrator says, begins with blood, and with blood it ends. A Country in Stories is not so far from the truth, and it is Penkov's ability to balance private sentiment against political and cultural upheaval that affords this collection its emotional as well as its chronological scope. Yet these stories are powerful not just because they draw from a long, rich historical vein. Penkov's writing is liquid. It spills across the page with ease. Some of this comes from the author's dominant use of the first-person perspective. Seven of the eight stories are told from the narrator's point of view. But Penkov's real talent lies in his ability to speak with equal authority about both history and character conflict. The voice is steady throughout these narratives, and it relays with confidence and empathy not only the tumultuous Bulgarian past, but also the tumultuous decisions and events of each protagonist's life. Penkov gives due weight to both the macro and the micro, and the final product is a collection of stories that easily and beautifully comments on the universal while paying deference to human nuance. East of the West is a marvelous debut from a writer with much talent and much heart, and it is with anxious eyes we must now wait to see where Pankov's writing goes and where his capable pen will travel to next. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest Jack Hart, guest host Jenny Patton, and reviewer Derek Palacio. For more from our guests today, visit www.writerstalk.org. For signed books and interview DVDs of select Writer's Talk guests, visit the Writer's Talk section of the Ohio State University Bookstore. Join me next week for my talk with Tess Gerritsen, recent Thurber House guest and author of the Rizzoli and Isles novels that form the basis for the TNT television series. Until then, this is Doug Dagner from The Ohio State University. Keep writing. Keep writing.